Well, it's a good thing that Emmanuel, God is with us in the person of Jesus Christ because he's the only one that has been able to fully live out the principle we're going to look at today. 1 Samuel chapter 25, and we're going to read verses 2 through 9. This is God's inerrant word intended for your edification. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please, give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire to uh, be not only instructed in how we should live, but empowered by your spirit for that living. We pray that you would do this in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this whole chapter deals with the story of David and Abigail. Uh, Most people just deal with the over arching theme that's uh, in the chapter. I want to dig in a little bit deeper here. Uh, This was a huge test of character for David. Previous to this, uh, David had exemplified the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Sermon on the Mount in an incredibly beautiful way. He had blessed those who had cursed him. He had uh, been a friend to those who wanted to be enemies to him. He had refused to take revenge into his own hands. Instead of pursuing Romans 13, which hadn't been written yet, he was pursuing Romans 12. He was leaving Romans 13 where it belonged. And in many ways, he exemplified uh, the commands that Christ gives in the Sermon on the Mount. But in this chapter, and we're not going to look at it today, he almost violated these principles when he got mad at Nabal and wanted to kill him. As I mentioned prior to this, he blessed those who cursed him. He did good to those who hadn't done a lick of good uh, for him. But in this chapter, he gets almost to the point where he's tired of being Mr. Nice Guy. And he said, enough of this. He, he, he told his men, strap your sold, sh- swords on your, on your hips. We're going to go over and get even. Of course, when you get angry and you want to get even, it's almost always more than getting even. And in this case, it certainly would have been that. And people uh, regret it. And we're going to be looking at those issues later on. But today I want to focus on just one principle that almost went out the window later on in this chapter. It's the principle of going the extra mile. Now, some of you may not know exactly what that is, so let me explain it in a little bit more detail. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 
Jesus said, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him two. Now, what Jesus was referring to in that passage was a Roman law that uh, made it legal for any Roman soldier to compel a Jew to pick up his pack and carry it for one mile and no more than one mile. And what Jesus was saying is, hey, I want you guys, when that happens, to go the second mile. That shows you're not conquered. That shows you're doing this willingly. This demonstrates the grace of God and perhaps might even open up an opportunity uh, for you to witness. I actually wanted to include a picture of uh, uh, Jesus. It's, it's an incredible picture of Jesus walking uh, on the road with a Nazi officer. You can see the swastika on his arm. But I just don't like the idea of pictures of Jesus in the church, and so I didn't include that. But I think it illustrated so well what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, that second mile shows that Christians should never be satisfied with simply doing an adequate job. No matter what a Christian should do, is involved in, he needs to go the second mile. When you work for your boss, you give to him more than what you contracted for. Uh, we still have vestiges of this in the restaurant industry when you give a tip, right? It's, you're giving more than what was contracted for. Well, sometimes now they expect it from you, but uh, that, that, that's the kind of an idea. And this is one of the laws of harvest that the New Testament picks up in 1 Corinthians 9 and Galatians 6 and in other places. And he says, this is something God has built into the very structure of life. This is a law. This is something that you can bank on. Now, David consistently did this in the past. And I believe it's one of several reasons why he was so successful why the Lord prospered him and the things that he did, why he was able to gather so many loyal people around him. And I want to give you just a few examples from the past chapters that we've gone through where David went the extra mile. We've not talked about this in the past, but I'm just going to kind of pull them all together. Uh, way back in chapter 17, David doesn't just bring food for his brothers. He brings 10 cheeses for his commander. Now, does he have to do that? No. But he's going the extra mile. Uh, here, here, here's something that the commander uh, could use and could appreciate. Uh, in the same uh, chapter, uh, when he's fighting against Goliath, he doesn't just bring one stone. He brings five stones. He never goes with just one. He's always going with much more. Uh, for example, the next chapter, chapter 18, when Saul asks for 100 foreskins of Philistines as a dowry, he gives double that. He counts out in full measure 200 foreskins. That's going the extra mile. Same chapter says that David behaved more wisely than anyone else. The other soldiers, they were doing a good job, doing just what they were contracted to do. But David's always thinking, how can I improve on what I am doing? And this is one of the reasons he kept advancing in life. Then in chapter 20, verse 41, it says that Jonathan and David kissed one another and they wept together, but David more so. And really that phrase more so could be applied to David on almost everything that he did. And I believe it's one of the key principles that explains his success. Now let me try to explain this principle in much more detail as we go through verses 6 through 8, and then I'm going to back up to verse 1, and we're going to show it in context. How does David exemplify this principle? In verse 6, David sent 10 young men to bless Nabal. 
Why does he do that? Does Nabal deserve blessing? And the answer is obviously no. Uh, everything we know about Nabal shows he deserves the exact opposite of this blessing. And verse 17, uh, one of his servants is quite blunt about this matter, uh, saying, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. I mean, his servants know his character. He is definitely not somebody who is worthy of being blessed. Uh, we're going to be seeing under Roman numeral 2 that David... If it had not been for David coming in chapter 23 and rescuing from the Philistines all of those flocks of sheep and, and herds of goats that have been taken, Nabal likely would have become very poor. Uh, he, 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 his flocks, most commentators believe, his flocks were taken right along with everybody, and he's reclaiming all of these things. Now, did he get any booty for his reward? No, he did it as, uh, you know, a nice fellow citizen. He, this was a good Samaritan act that he was involved in. It was going the extra mile with a person that was somewhat hard-headed. Now, I've had three jobs in the past where my supervisor was incredibly hard-headed. Uh, they were hard to get along with. They took me for granted. Uh, they would chew me out for things that I didn't do. But what was, I think, worst of all is they would take credit for my successes and make money off of my successes. And it bothered me initially, but over time, the Lord used that to, to make me realize, look, Phil, you are doing everything for my glory. You're not doing it for them. You're not doing it for the credit. And when you do everything for my glory, it will work together for your good. And just by faith, I began to uh, live in terms, of that, <laughs> in terms of that principle. When Jesus commanded us to give that Roman soldier a second mile, He's not a saint. He's not a nice soldier. That's not why he's saying that. The likelihood is that that Roman soldier was no different than Nabal. He was a Nabal that was hard to get along with. And from a human perspective, uh, when you're uh, carrying that uh, pack for a Roman soldier, you're probably never even going to see him again. There's nothing tangible that you can expect to get from doing that, except for, for the fact that you can never outgive God. You're doing it for the Lord God. Now, I love what one author said about giving the extra with an ungrateful boss. He said, if you serve an ungrateful master, serve him the more. Put God in your debt. Every stroke shall be repaid. The longer the payment is withheld, the better for you. For compound interest on compound interest is the rate and usage of this exchequer. Well, there's a sense in which we can never put God into our debt because Jesus said, you can do your best job and you're still an unprofitable servant, aren't you? You're just doing what is your duty to do. But the point is, God has committed himself to reward you. God has committed himself to bless you as you, uh, as you seek to live your life the way he has commanded. Um, the reason there are so few people who are willing to go the extra mile is because they're present-oriented and they are completely blinded by their circumstances. Going the extra mile, when it finally became a principle of my life, I just saw God blessing over and over again. It, it's a principle of life that I want to get you guys excited about this morning. It's a wonderful, a wonderful blessing. And the three jobs that I've mentioned... God blessed me with job security. Now, it's true that the, my fellow employees kept coming up to me and saying, Phil, you've got to quit working so hard. You're making us look bad. 
but my bosses came to me because I each of those three jobs I had to go on to school and and they said I don't care what the circumstances you always have a job here we want your kind of person here and so uh, by engaging in this second mile kind of Christianity and kind of work I made myself an asset uh, to these people uh, 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 that made me valuable the second principle that I see in verse 6 is that when David protected and served the citizens of the region of Judah, and Caleb, by the way, got assimilated into Judah. They just became Judahites, so they were uh, treated as kinsmen of, of David. But when he served in Judah, he didn't just serve those who were poor, those who needed the extra mile, uh, those who deserved the extra mile. No, he served and blessed those who were better off than he was. Now, this just grates on some people. But let me tell you something. Until you can do this joyfully, until it no longer grates, until you can do this for the Lord and capture this principle, you're not going to be blessed. This is not going to be something that will help you. Verse 6 says, And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace to you, peace to your house, peace to all that you have. And think about the one who he is wishing to have more prosperity. He's, going, he's been helping to have more prosperity. This guy's got 3,000 sheep. He's got 1,000 goats. I mean, he's not quite as wealthy as Job. Job had more, just a little bit more than twice that amount of sheep and goats. But this guy was a wealthy dude. Okay, so this shows to me David had no class envy. He had no resentment. And I want you to contrast David's willingness to help out this man, this investor, this wealthy investor, and make him even more wealthy. Contrast that with at least some of the people who have been in the Wall Street protesters, you know, uh, movement recently. Some of those people would just as soon string up a Nabal as help him in any way, like David's been doing over the past months. We're not told exactly how long that David uh, had been uh, protecting uh, him. They don't bless like David blessed here, they curse, okay? But if you envy your boss that you work for because he's far wealthier than you are, and if you're resentful of the fact that he's got more wealth than you, you're missing out. You're going to short-circuit the reward of this principle that we're going to be looking at today. It's when you serve your boss faithfully that the Lord blesses you in return. Read Napoleon Hill's book sometime, the habit of going the extra mile. It's just one little part of some of the things that he, that he taught. But you will see example after example of people who worked for those who were very rich and blessed them, did everything they could to advance those people. And over time, they became indispensable. And they either got hired away or these guys didn't want to lose them and kept advancing them economically uh, over a period of time. Uh, those gripped by resentment, over the wealth of others, envy over the wealth of others, don't have what it takes to succeed. Now, of course, that's principle C, wishing even more success to those that you work for. David said, peace to all that you have. Now, the Hebrew word for peace there uh, means prosperity, success, health. It's in blessing your boss that you get blessed. Related to this is point D, going beyond the call of duty in respecting and benefiting the stewardship of others. Take a look at verse 7. David says, Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. 
And according to the servants, this was not an exaggeration at all. Verse 16 has a servant saying, They were a wall to us, both by night and day, all the time they were with them. We were with them keeping sheep. Now, this implies the threat of Philistine marauders, and David was keeping those marauders uh, away. And then take a look down at verse 21. Now, David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. Now, of course, at that point, David was beginning to doubt this law of the second mile, right? He was, uh, at, at that point, thinking, I'm giving this up. This is not worth it. But here's the point. Previously, he had been engaging in the second law, or the second mile. And David's reputation for a second mile kind of a guy was already beginning to be well known. Now, at least some of you have read this. You know the story of how uh, Woolworth's uh, five and ten cent stores uh, started. Frank Woolworth was uh, just a, a lowly uh, salesman in a hardware store, and uh, he did what all of the other uh, uh, salesmen did, or at least had the responsibilities to do, but he went beyond that. He always put in the second mile. Now, he never got a dime initially for going the second mile, but it was a habit of his life. He didn't care. One time when business was slow, uh, rather than, you know, sitting around like the other salesmen waiting for customers to come in, he was strategizing. How do I do to improve the business? And so he got this brilliant idea of putting all of the stuff that they couldn't sell that was either outdated or outside of a box or it was odds and ends of stuff, put it into a, a bin and said uh, every item for 10 cents. And uh, it just, all of these gadgets just sold like hotcakes and made his boss quite a bit of money. Anyway, he kept doing stuff like this. And over time, Frank Woolworth became indispensable. And then eventually this habit got him $50 million. Now, does everybody who goes the second mile get rich? Absolutely not. Uh, that's not the point here. But everyone who goes the extra mile is rewarded by God for living by faith. And it really takes faith to live by this principle. It does. Point E gives another principle that's involved in going the extra mile. It involves serving people, developing relationships rather than simply focusing on money. The second phrase in verse 7 says, Your shepherds were with us. David developed a relationship with these shepherds as he served them, and it paid off. In verses 14 through 19, we see that the shepherds spoke very, very highly of David. They respected him. Uh, he was Why? He was with them. He served them. Uh, Napoleon Hill tells the story of a woman who came in from the rain and was wandering around in a Pittsburgh store, and <clears throat> she went to counter after counter, but the salespeople just ignored her because it was obvious she was coming in from the rain. She was just looking. She wasn't uh, going to buy anything. But he tells of this one uh, clerk uh, who politely bowed and said, uh, may I serve you? And she says, no, I'm just killing time, waiting for the rain to stop until I can get home. And he said, very well, madam. May I bring a chair for you? And before she could even answer, he runs, gets a chair, has her sit down and, and uh, made a bit of fuss over her. And when the rain subsided, he escorted her out to the door on his arm and bid her a good day. And before she left, he, she asked uh, for his card. 
Well, those of you who have read the story know exactly who she was. She was the mother of Andrew Carnegie, the second wealthiest person in the world. And um, when she got back to Scotland, she contacted the store and asked for this young man to help her furnish her castle in uh, the Skibo Castle. And uh, it ended up being an unbelievably profitable thing for that store. But she said, well, they said, you know, he doesn't work in the furniture department. We'll send another clerk. And she said, no, if you want my business, you're going to send this young man. She really appreciated the fact this guy went the second mile. Verse 7 also says, we did not hurt them. Now, there was at least one commentator who was very cynical about what David was doing in this chapter. He said, oh, yeah, it's a mafia protection uh, you know, type of a thing. We'll protect your sheep so long as you pay us. And uh, this shows that's not the case at all. There was no threats to these shepherds. And further than that, uh, David did not step on others in order to climb the ladder of success. That's the evolutionary way of the survival of the fittest. In fact, fact, it's one of the things that's most offended me about Spencer. Spencer applied the doctrine of evolution to virtually everything, including economics. He was the guy that was teaching these big corporations that you use every dirty trick in the book, you know, in order to get ahead. You get in bed with the government and make the government uh, pass laws that will benefit you and rule out the competition. It was survival of the fittest kind of an approach. This is not where free market came originally. Not at all. Uh, The biblical method for advancement is service and treating others as you would be want to be treated yourself. Now, Spencer and others thought "Ah, Sermon on the Mount, that's so naive. But you know what? The principles in the Sermon on the Mount are the principles that underlie one of the greatest sales approaches ever uh, produced. And it's been captured in a book called The New Conceptual Selling. Ken Cope says it's the best book he's ever read. On, uh, on sales. He says it's phenomenal. In fact, it's been so phenomenal that a lot of corporations have begun training. They've ditched the old, they've brought in the new and trained people using the new conceptual selling. Now, we know it's not the new. You know, it's just resurrecting the old principle of washing one another's feet, serving one another uh, well. And uh, Jesus worded it this way, that if you put yourself first, you're always eventually going to end up being last. But if you put yourself last, then God will put you first. And when you're going the second mile, what you are in effect doing is you are putting yourself last in the interests of other people. And Napoleon Hill documented in his large study of 500 successful businesses, he did massive interviews of these guys, and they embraced this, pro- uh, this paradox that those who put themselves last find themselves becoming so valuable to others that those others put them first. Verse 7 goes on to say, Nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Not once did David steal from the rich. A lot of people justify ripping off a rich uh, business owner with the thought, hey, we're not getting paid everything that we deserve anyway. You know, I deserve more, so I'm just going to take it. He's not going to give it to me. They don't have the faith to patiently wait for God to bless them. Now, initially, it did not look like David was going to be prospered by following these kingdom principles, but over time, he was. And going the extra mile is one of the central kingdom principles that he embodied. Point H, 
is letting your work speak for itself. Uh, The young men were instructed to tell Nabal, ask your young men and they will tell you. See, if your ethic, your work ethic embodies the second mile, your reputation will go before you. Now, certainly there are going to be Nabals out there who could care less, you know, about the fact that you're working hard. They don't care. There are going to be a lot of Nabals. There's always going to be those. But there will be others who will care and who will value your work and will recommend you. And certainly in verse 16, the uh, shepherds uh, there valued the work of David immensely. Uh, They were his good references, so to speak. Now, I want to conclude the first point by saying that it really takes faith to live by this principle. And the reason I say it takes faith is it doesn't seem like it always works. David went for a long time without seeing the results of going the extra mile. You can go the extra mile for a long time without seeing results. You can have a lot of nables in your life, but going the extra mile is a principle that in effect, is preparing your fields for the rain, as the Kendrick brothers like to to word it. It's putting yourself in the path of God's blessing should he sovereignly decide to bless you in those ways. And God does love to bless his people that live out the, the kingdom principles of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in contrast, some people are so driven by bad past experiences that they just will not live by faith. Their attitude is poisoned. They find themselves constantly reverting to the world's wisdom, the world's way of doing things. Let me illustrate this. There was a, it's a fable actually, but a fable of a farmer who found a, uh, a nest of an eagle that had been abandoned and it still had a warm egg in it. So he thought, hey, this would be fun to see what happens. He takes the egg, puts it under one of his laying hens, and the egg hatches, the eagle comes out, grows up amongst the chickens, you know, scrabbles out, uh, you know, his food in the farmyard and never really looks up until he's quite a bit older. And as an old creature, one time this uh, eagle looks up and sees an eagle soaring high up there in the sky And the old creature sighs to himself and says, if only I had been born an eagle. Now that may seem like a silly story, but if you fail to live out this principle of the Sermon on the Mount, of going the extra mile, it is acting just as silly. Those who refuse to walk by faith are like that old eagle. They're just eking out an existence like a chicken. And every time somebody challenges them, look, you really need to go the extra mile, they think, I just can't. I'm a chicken, you know? <laughs> it's no use anyway. Nothing good's going to happen from this. Well, God says that everyone who is born again has been born to soar like an eagle. Isaiah 40, verse 31 says, but those who wait on the Lord, and like David, sometimes it does require a lot of waiting, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God doesn't want us to roost like chickens. He doesn't want us to be thinking inside the box. He doesn't want us to simply be putting in another day's work just like so many Americans do. He wants us to think outside the box. He wants us to have expectations outside the box. He wants us to be planting seeds outside the box and expecting that those seeds really will grow. One of the conditions, though, for success that God says 
we must go the second mile. It's just one of the laws of harvest in First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 9 and Galatians 6 and other passages. Now, I, what I want to do, I want to back up to verse 1. I want to see how does this principle we've just described get lived out in the life of David. Let me read at verse 1. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah, and David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, as we saw last week, the wilderness of Paran was outside of Israel. David was as far as you could get from the throne of Israel. He was as far as you could get from any people of influence, you know, who could benefit him financially or help him to climb the ladder of success. He was remote uh, from Israel. And so the question might be, why even try? Nobody's noticing. And yet he still practiced the habit of going the extra mile because his goal was to please God, not simply to get on the throne. There was a minister on a short-term missions trip who had quite a long ways to travel. He went, uh, first of all, by train and then traveled by car. Finally, he got into a boat to get to the island where he was going to be ministering, and he was kind of worn out, and he told um, one of the local villagers, you're very remote here, aren't you? And she responded, remote from what? <laughs> as far as she was concerned, she wasn't remote from anything that she cared about. And um, if you are serving God first and foremost, you are never remote from success in his eyes. Now, let's apply that, pr that story to this principle of going the extra mile. If you're going the extra mile to please God, there is never a time when this principle does not make total sense. If you're going the extra mile to manipulate your boss into giving you favor, then when the boss is not around, you're not going to be motivated to serve him. Uh, I was in one job where there was a guy there that was a lazy bum. All he cared about was getting two checks uh, a month. Now, when the boss was around, he worked his tail off. It looked like he was going the extra mile. But when the boss was not around, uh, he was very unmotivated. And I was a janitor at that time in the same business. And uh, I had a responsibility to be sterilizing all of the, the floors. They had special solutions and everything. And we would go from room to room. And there were some rooms that I'd cleaned the day before. And I knew for a fact nobody had been in that room. And the temptation was, you know, this room really doesn't need any cleaning. Maybe I could just do the main uh, areas. I don't need to move the furniture and move the... The, the trash can, but then immediately came to my mind, no, you've contracted to move everything and sterilize everything in this room, and you're working for God. And so I did, and I noticed as I moved the trash can, there was a little piece of paper underneath there. And the other furniture, there was little pieces of paper, and quite a long time later, my boss told me, oh, yeah, yeah I maybe never told you, but I put little pieces of paper under all of those furniture because I was testing your character to see whether you would be moving this furniture or not. And she said, you're the only one who has passed every test. Now, I thought she was remote. She wasn't even close on the facilities. I was so wrong. And it was the same with David. It was the same with David. Um, because he implemented this principle to serve the Lord, he did it always. And there were observers 
who carried this information to others later in this chapter and then later on in this book. But the reputation that he gained spread because he did it for the Lord and he always did it in every circumstance, even when David was remote. Okay, does that make sense? Now, point B, David engaged in going the extra mile even with a fabulously wealthy man. Now, we've talked about this a little bit, but some people think, you know, wealthy people really don't deserve the extra mile. I'll do this for needy people. But wealthy people, they really don't deserve the extra mile. It doesn't matter. God deserves it. And when you're serving that wealthy person, you are serving the Lord God. Some people think a scoundrel like Nabal doesn't deserve going the extra mile. But why would you allow your reputation to be compromised simply because Nabal's got a bad reputation? Okay, so let me read verse 2, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you some of the very intangible ways in which going the extra mile does benefit you, does bring you success, even with an able. Okay, verse 2, now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, it may have seemed fruitless to David to go the extra mile with this man. In fact, in verse 21, he says exactly that. It was useless. It was a waste of time that I went through. But David was forgetting then that going the extra mile gives many intangible benefits. And I'm going to just list a a tiny sampling of them. First, since most other people do not go the extra mile... When you do it as a habit of life, it sets you apart from the common herd. Second, it gives you a mental habit of thinking outside the box that enables you to be a leader rather than a follower. See, leaders never just put in a day's work of what's expected. Leaders are always going the extra mile. They're always thinking outside the box. They're trying to improve themselves. Third, the constant attempts at seeking new and better ways of rendering service develops your imagination, develops your creativity, and again, that sets you aside from the common herd. Fourth, it causes the characteristic of initiative to grow and to develop. Uh, One of the things I'm always looking for is people with initiative. In fact, um, I hadn't thought of bringing this up, but my acrostic, when I'm looking for people who are potential leaders, is fasting. Faithful, available, submissive, teachable, initiative. They're networking. In other words, they can work with other people, and they're constantly growing. Okay, that's my uh, quick and dirty list that I give there. But in terms of this principle here, initiative. Fifth, it strengthens a God-centeredness in all that you do. You're doing it as under the Lord. Sixth, It gives others confidence in your integrity. Seventh, as the Sermon on the Mount uh, demonstrates so, uh, so well, it forces you to depend upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard to do this if you're not living in the cross and you're not living by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Eighth, it develops a Galatians 1.10 attitude. And I didn't jot down that verse, but let me go ahead and read that for you. Uh, Galatians 1.10 says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? If I was still seeking to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Instead of being a man-pleaser, both Ephesians and Colossians says, even slaves who don't have a choice in what kind of work they do should be doing it as unto the Lord. Now, there's at least a dozen more intangible benefits that come from going the extra mile. 
uh, even when people won't reward you and don't deserve your extra mile. And it's because of such reasons that Napoleon Hill said, speaking once more in terms that seem paradoxical, be reminded that the most profitable time a man devotes to labor is that for which he receives no direct or immediate financial compensation. Why? You yourself are being strengthened. Okay, verse 3 shows that the guy that David went the extra mile for, was a guy who was a jerk. I mean, even though he was one of the leading families in Judah, it doesn't seem like anybody respected him. His servants didn't respect him. His wife didn't respect him. Uh, he, uh, even though was related in terms of tribal affinity with David, he shows no interest in David or anybody else except for me, myself, and I. Listen to one commentator's uh, description of Nabal. His name meant fool, and he is described as harsh and evil, verse 3. A casual reading of the narrative would also reveal that he was arrogant, insensitive, self-centered, lacking discipline, and not terribly bright. But what is most remarkable to me about David's going the extra mile with this guy is that there were zero financial benefits from doing so. I've already mentioned in chapter 23, Philistines had come in and cleaned up the whole neighborhood. They had robbed people, pillaged the area, taken sheep and, and uh, goats and and cattle, David came in, he rescued these, gave them back to the people, and you'd think he would get a reward, but no. There was no reward from Nabal. Um, Secondly, David continued to protect the district from reprisals from those same Philistines, and as the servants testified, he protected Nabal's flocks for quite some period of time. You'd think there'd be at least a thank you from this guy. There's no thank you. Now, here's the question I have for you. Could you go the extra mile for a person like that? David later got tired of it. But up to this point, he's been going the extra mile with this Nabal. So the contrast between Nabal and David may seem to prove the exact opposite of everything I've been telling you. Here's Nabal, who never goes the extra mile, and he's rich, he's successful. Here's David, who always goes the extra mile, and he's poor. So I'm just going to ignore everything that Pastor Kaiser has said. <laughs> no, don't do that. Don't do that, because that's measuring success simply by money. Nabal was not successful if you measure success by what others thought of him, what his servants thought of him, what his wife thought of him. He was not successful if you measure success in terms of how his money was being used as a stewardship trust to impact his country. No, it was all selfishly spent. He was not a success if you think about what was being laid up in heaven. Utterly not a success. He blew it. In contrast, David had built such a profound reputation in Israel that the servants respected him. Abigail respected him, said, you know, we all know that you're going to be a king. That's what he says later on in this chapter. Israel already knows this. David's going to become the king. God has blessed him so richly that Abigail says, please don't take revenge here, because if you do, it's going to destroy your reputation, and you are going to, in the future, have great grief over having brought bloodshed right here. Uh, it is a wonderful speech. We'll get to that sometime in the future, Lord willing. Uh, but from her perspective, David is the one who is prospering. Nabal is the one who is losing everything. And I think her perspective is absolutely right. 
Absolutely right. It would have been an enormous loss to David in this area if he had killed Nabal. And David admits later that it would have been a great sin. Who knows? Maybe he would have even lost the throne if he had carried through on this. Now, I do want to comment on those two names because people tend to live up to the expectations that they have of themselves and that other people have of them. Many times they're driven by the expectations of others. They hate the fact that they're driven by it, but they keep finding themselves driven by what other people think of them. Uh, verse 3 says, the, man, the name of the man was Nabal. And I've already uh, said that Nabal means fool. Now, what parent would call his son fool. It's such a strange name that at least one commentator has said, we just can't take the text literally here. Maybe it was a nickname that the servants gave to him. But most commentators say, no, the text, if you're taking the text at all seriously, indicates this was his name. Now, what parent, why in the world would a parent name his son fool? Uh, maybe it was a parent who had uh, real high expectations for his kids and the kid comes out looking ugly or looking retarded. I don't know. Maybe he's just a mean-spirited dad. We're not told exactly why it is. But here's the thing I want to draw out. People will often live up to the expectations that you have of them. When people are constantly making negative affirmations about their children, their children sometimes begin to live up or live down to the expectations that you place upon them. Why would you go the extra mile if your parents constantly convinced you that it's useless to do so? Why would you go the extra mile if your parents never modeled generosity and you never saw God blessing their generosity? Why would you go the extra mile if it's been drilled into your consciousness from the time that you were a baby that the only way to survive is to be the top dog in a dog-eat-dog -dog world? But if you're convinced that God is for you, that He will prosper you, that He will reward you going the extra mile, then all of a sudden there's all kinds of verses in the Scripture that come to life. Verses like 1 Corinthians 15, 57 through 58. It's a verse that, that energizes you to go the extra mile. Let me read that for you. Those verses say, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That verse indicates that God is not like Nabal's father. God believes in you. God is affirming your success. He is telling you it is not in vain to abound in your work. It is not in vain to go the second mile. Don't act like your name is Nabal and don't make such negative affirmations about your children as Nabal's father made about him. Now, in contrast, think about Abigail. Abigail must have been a woman who was convinced that her labor in the Lord was not in vain even though she had a scoundrel for a husband. Think of that. She had a scoundrel for a husband. The text says, In the name of his wife, Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. Here was a woman who was living up to the meaning of her name, which means father's joy. She was her father's joy. Now, when you have a father who casts that kind of a vision into your life, you want to abound. You want to please him. You want to bring joy to your father, don't you? Okay, but the point again is she was living up to her parents' expectations. And so one of my questions to you is this. 
What are your expectations for your children? David, up to this uh, verse, had been living in the vision that God had given to him that his labors in the Lord were not in vain. Now, if you've had a father like Nabal's father, you can break out of that cycle. You can. You can start things anew with your own generation. and say, Even if you've, for the last few years, been making negative affirmations like uh, Nabal's father did, you can say, I'm switching that, and by faith, I'm going to believe that uh, as I invest into my children, God's going to bring a harvest. Point D says, going the extra mile gives the courage to ask for advancements when it is warranted. Now, some people, they expect advancements from their boss even when they have not distinguished themselves by going the extra mile. But David didn't do that. David first proved himself, and most commentaries see verses 4 through 8 as a very legitimate request because of four things. And let me go ahead and read those again, and then I'll give you the, the four reasons. But if you look at 4 through 8, when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace to you. Peace to your house and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please, give whatever comes to your hand, to your servants, and to your son David. Now here's the four reasons why that was a perfectly appropriate request. First, Nabal owed the existence of his flocks to David, who rescued them from the Philistines. Second, Nabal owed the ongoing safety of his flocks to David. Third, it was a festival day when God commanded rich people to bless those who were poor. And fourth, the protocol of Eastern hospitality would make this request quite proper. It would be sort of like you asking a bonus from your boss at the end of the year after you have saved him $10 million because of your special work and your special initiative and saying, you know, I I really enjoy working for you and and everything. Hint, hint, no. (laughs) Uh, And you know that I've saved you $10 million here. I was just wondering if I could have a $10,000 bonus. You see, when you have gone the extra mile as a habit of your life, you begin to have this confidence that you are indeed an asset uh, to the person that you are uh, working for, and there's nothing wrong with that, and eventually you will get rewarded. They may not give it that year, but they may give it the next year, and if they don't, if they're a Nabal who refuses to bless you, what's going to happen is because... Um, these kind of people think outside the box, eventually somebody else is going to be hiring them, right? Uh, The blessing will come. Napoleon Hill gave his QQMA formula that he distilled from 500 successful businessmen. And they themselves, by the way, were successful because they constantly were looking for people outside the box, you know, who uh, were distinguished from the herd. And they were elevating them. They were paying these guys, and it continued to prosper them. But he summarizes QQMA this way. First Q, the quality of service you render plus the quantity of service you render plus the mental attitude in which you render service determines the space you occupy in your chosen calling 
and the compensation you get from your services. Now, that's not in his books. It's in one of his lectures, which you can get his lectures online. And by the way, I don't agree with everything that Napoleon Hill says, so don't see this as an endorsement of what, uh, everything that he says. But if you can prove that you're an indispensable asset, there is no reason why you can't ask your boss for more. And if he's not willing to do that, you've got plenty of resumes of people who think you're the most fabulous stuff, and you take these resumes, like these, these servants who said, yeah, this guy's great, he's the greatest, you know, and you go to another company. Nothing wrong with that at all. And of course, point E admits that some people will never recognize or reward the fact that you have gone the extra mile. And while going the extra mile does not guarantee your success in one area of life or advancement there, and verses 9 and following, you read those, you realize, they're waiting. They're waiting for an advancement from Nabal. He doesn't give it. Okay, but still, God blesses the faithfulness with advancement. Over time, there were many, many Israelites who began to recognize uh, David's character and his valuable skills. But certainly God did, and he's the most important person in this equation. Now, let me tell you the story of Carol Downs. He was a junior officer in a bank, and the uh, president of General Motors... Uh, William Durant uh, came by, and he's knocking on the window trying to get in. It's after hours, and everybody's wanting to leave. But Carol Downs, he just cheerfully welcomes him in, and uh, he courteously and very efficiently works through his business, and he made Mr. Durant feel like it was a delight to serve him. Now, for Carol Downs, that was no big deal. This is the way he always worked. He didn't think it was anything special. But Mr. Durant did. Uh, The president of General Motors recognized this put him apart from the crowd. He was always looking for these special people and adding them to his business. And so the the president of General Motors the next day invited him to his place and said, hey, I've got a job proposal for you, and I want to give you an advancement. And he found out what he was making, and uh, so he got an office job. There's about 100 other people in this, uh, this room there. And Carol Downs noticed at the end of his first workday, dong, the bell goes, and everybody grabs their hat and coat, and they're rushing toward the door. But as his habit was, he stayed at his desk, and he's he's got a few minutes now to strategize how the next day he can be going the extra mile. And uh, the the boss came out, and he says, uh, didn't you realize that 5.30 is a quitting time? And uh, Carol Downs uh, said, Oh, yes, but I did not wish to be run over in the rush. And then he said, is there any way that I can serve you? And he said, yeah, I've been looking for a a sharp pencil. So he quickly sharpens a pencil, gives it to him. Very trivial thing. But then he outlined a lot of the different things that Carol Downs did, trivial as well as profound, where he was going the extra mile. And initially, no reward. Initially, it didn't seem to make any difference. But several months later, he was asked to go to a new plant and oversee the installation of the plant machinery. Now, he didn't know anything about installing machinery, but he said, oh, a good challenge, yeah. And he went ahead and did it. Three months later, when it was finished, uh, Mr. Durant asked him, how in the world did you know or learn about uh, uh, installing machinery? And he said, oh, I never learned, Mr. Durant. I merely looked around, found men who knew how to get the job done, put them to work, and they did it. And so he was an honest fellow, and he was a very humble fellow. He gave credit where credit was due. And Mr. Durant said, splendid. There are two types of men who are valuable. One is the fellow who can do something and do it well without complaining that he is overworked. The other is the fellow who can get other people to do things well without complaining. 
You're both types wrapped into one package. And Mr. Durant gave him a huge salary to run that new plant that he had just uh, set up. And over the next 10 years, Carol Downs kept getting advanced because he distinguished himself from everyone else by going the extra mile. Let me give you some Proverbs that talk about this. Proverbs 10 and verse 4. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. This is God's word. So don't be shooting this down by spiritualizing everything and say, oh, we only believe in salvation. Yeah, in heaven you'll be rich. No, 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 no. He is talking literally about on earth. Proverbs 12, 24. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 12, 27. The lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but diligence is man's precious possession. Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Proverbs 21.5 The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. Proverbs 27.23 Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. Now some of you distinguish yourselves by going the extra mile working for church. You volunteer without even being asked. And when you volunteer, you do the job great, do a wonderful job. Let me tell you something, that does not go unnoticed. You never know how God might use your reputation in the future. Now, you might be thinking that you're working, you know, out of the limelight and nobody's even noticing that, but people do notice. People, especially who are leaders, tend to notice these types of things because they're always looking for such people. Actually, I've been uh, looking for a person with this as well as a number of other qualities for Ruth for a long time. I've been watching David for a long time, probably since 2007. And I've noticed, you know, he's got an unusual work ethic. And so does Seth and Michael and a number of you other uh, people in this uh, congregation. There are many ways in which going the extra mile can be seen. It can be seen in a fine young man who cheerfully picks up the plates on Sunday and serves other people. And I think most of you know exactly who this fine young man is, right? And uh, he's going the extra mile. It could be seen in a very quiet but a fine young girl who does more than the basics in terms of chores and baking and hospitality for her parents. I mean, I just love it when I see young people throughout this church who are going the extra mile. They serve with a smile. It is characteristic of David's success that every one of us should emulate. And by the way, you read the Sermon on the Mount, and it's quite clear. You read all the way through that. If you are born again, you have all the grace that you need to be able to go the second mile. In fact, he says, this is proof that you are sons of God. He's saying, this is the way it should be for every Christian. It really should be that way for every Christian. Deuteronomy 6, verse 17 says, this is the way you pursue sanctification, not just putting in the minimum effort uh, for a social righteousness. And by social righteousness, I mean other people think you're okay, you know, because you're just a little bit above average. He says, no, you've got to go way beyond that. You're doing it as unto the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 17 says, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God. And Deuteronomy 28, 1 says, when you diligently pursue sanctification, God will set you high above everyone else. That's another way of saying you're going to be distinguished from the common herd, okay? 
Going the extra mile in sanctification. Okay, Proverbs 8, 17 applies the extra mile to growing in wisdom. It says, wisdom personified says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. And having found diligence, he says, you're going to be prospered in every area of your dominion. 1 Timothy 5 tells us why some widows were singled out for financial support in their old age. Now, he didn't do this to all the Christian widows. They were singled out. It was because they had excelled in going the extra mile in the past in their ministry, and they were continuing to do so. Paul said this of that kind of widow, that she is well-reported for good works. In other words, she's developed a reputation of going the second mile, well-reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work... Such widows had distinguished themselves from the common herd and were an incredible asset to the church. How do you apply the extra mile to your studies? Well, Proverbs 1 through 2 says that it's by the diligence with which you mine truth from the Scripture. You dig for it as for silver and gold. You sift it. You weigh it. You go the extra mile in your studies and you distinguish yourself from the average Christian who just puts in enough study to get by. Let me end this sermon by one more quote. Napoleon Hill said, Let us now observe that the admonition to render more service and better service than that for which one is paid is paradoxical because it is impossible for anyone to render such service without receiving appropriate compensation. The compensation may come in many forms and from many different sources, some of them strange and unexpected sources, but come it will. The worker who renders this type of service may not always receive appropriate compensation from the people to whom he renders the service, but this habit will attract to him many opportunities for self-advancement among them new and more valuable sources of employment. Thus his pay will come to him directly. Now he's applying it to the workplace. What I'm saying in this sermon is this principle applies to all of life. It's just one of the laws of harvest. 2 Corinthians 9 promises that he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. It's a law of harvest. God has built this right into the frame of your being, into the frame of the way things work uh, for people. In the next verses, David was tempted to give up, and Abigail spares David from missing out on the reward, from violating uh, this principle. Going the extra mile only pays off when you persevere and you make it, what the title says, a habit of life. It's got to be a habit of life. That's why Galatians 6 says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And so, brothers and sisters, if a Saul contracts for 100 foreskins, give him 200. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> by God's grace, emulate David in going the extra mile. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you for the examples like David that we have to, to stimulate our thinking and our desires to grow in holiness. And I pray that every person in this congregation would put on this principle of going the extra mile. Father, 
we don't want to live just the way the world lives. In every area of life, we want your grace to transform us, uh, to make us more and more like your Son. We need your grace if we're to achieve this because our mind uh, so easily drags us down into excuses as to why we ought to think like the world thinks. But Father, may we think your thoughts after you. May we be driven by the principles of the kingdom that are outlined in the Sermon on the Mount. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.